name rightly. So we come to Luke chapter 9, and the scripture we're going to look at this morning, Jesus' followers, those 12 disciples, they are engaged in an argument, a debate, a dispute, if you will, and this is not the only time we find the disciples arguing. We'll see it again before the end of Luke. You get a group of a dozen men together, and this is kind of what happens. We're knuckleheads, and we tend to dispute and argue over stupid things. Uh, What they were arguing about on that particular day as they're making their way to the city of Capernaum, which was kind of the center of Jesus' ministry, as they're making their way back to Capernaum, they're arguing over which one of them is the greatest, which sounds like a really stupid argument. But men in this room, we could probably all admit to the fact that if it's not been that exact argument, we've had similar arguments with our buddies who caught the biggest fish, who could make the most three-pointers. We, we argue and debate and compete over, over everything. So the debate was which one of the disciples was the greatest. Now, we don't know what exactly what led to this argument, to this debate. Uh, earlier in this chapter, we find Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, where the glory of God's like heaven. The, the, it's like the heavens were pulled back, and they were allowed to see the glory of God. They heard the voice of God. They saw Jesus meeting with Moses and Elijah, but only Peter, James, and John were given that opportunity, and so perhaps that uh, elicited some competitiveness, some jealousy in the group that led to this debate when they came down the mountain there was a a young boy that was demon possessed and the disciples that were remaining there had been unable to heal this young man who was the only son of his his father and so perhaps this debate came because those disciples were unsuccessful in healing this boy and and Jesus had to step in and do what they uh, were incapable of doing we don't know exactly what led to it Uh, Sometimes we just argue over stupid stuff for stupid stuff's sake, don't we? This argument reminds me of, uh, many of you know that I I have an affinity for acronyms, words that each letter stands for something like SCUBA, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. So there's one acronym that's been very prominent in the news this last week, and it's the acronym GOAT. And it stands for greatest of all time. And in the debate this last week, since last week's Super Bowl, has been on whether Tom Brady is the greatest of all times in, in terms of NFL quarterbacks. Now, the man does hold now uh, six championships, and, and there's been a lot of debate over, uh, is he the greatest quarterback of, of all time in, in NFL history? In the middle of the Super Bowl last week, as some of the commercials were, were coming on, I got into a debate with one of our elementary school kids. Now, if you've ever debated with an elementary schooler, it usually doesn't go well for you. And it didn't go well for me. The debate came when there was a particular commercial that came on, and LeBron James was there in the commercial. And this young lady said, there's LeBron James. He's the greatest basketball player of all time. And I immediately said, no, he's not. Everybody who knows anything knows that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. And she decisively ended the debate with these words. Nuh-uh, because my daddy says so. (laughs) And as a fellow father, I immediately conceded the debate because dads are never wrong. Right, men in the room? We, We have to hold up each other's rightness along the way. And so 
We're going to see the disciples this morning engaged in a goat dispute, if you will. Who is the greatest of all time? The irony is that the one who is truly the greatest of all time was right there in their midst. But they weren't paying any attention to him. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 43, if you could stand in honor of God's word this morning. We're going to read just six verses today. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 43. And the word of the Lord says that while they were all marveling at everything that Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest, which one is the goat, if you will. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. This is the word of the Lord. Let's be seated together this morning. Father, I simply pray for us this morning. Help us to see the priorities of your kingdom. Reveal your heart to us. And mold our hearts to be more like yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk this morning on this Stand Sunday about the goat in God's kingdom. Jesus is showing us something here that is so radically countercultural, and not just counter to our culture, but counter to every earthly culture. Because every earthly culture has been infected by the disease of sin, a cancer that eats away at godly priorities and exalts self, exalts pride and does not exalt the things that God seeks to put on display. And so as we look at this acronym today, the acronym GOAT, I'm going to use that as our outline. If you want to follow along, there's a sheet of notes there in your bulletin. We begin, though, with this idea. If we're going to understand the, who is the greatest in God's kingdom, we have to begin with the idea and the truth of God's greatness. I mean, imagine the scene here for a moment, what's happening in this moment as they are making their way back to the city of Capernaum. They're on the road. We learned that from Mark's account of this in Mark chapter 9. They're on their way back to Capernaum as this discussion is taking place. Jesus has just, for the second time in this chapter, if you look back over Luke chapter 9, you'll see earlier in the chapter he had already told them. He had already uh, told them he was getting ready to go to Jerusalem where he would be handed over to the scribes and the Pharisees, where he would be killed, and on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But they had no idea what he was talking about. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. In fact, even here it says it was concealed from them. 
Perhaps God the Father knew it would have been too much for them in that moment. They wouldn't have been able to handle it. Sometimes God conceals things from us as well because we're not ready to receive that truth just yet. But as they're walking along the road, Jesus is sharing with them for the second time about the fact that he is going to go to Jerusalem, he he is going to be brought up on false charges, and and he is going to be led to a place to be crucified, bearing the sins of all mankind, and three days later he is going to rise from there. As Jesus is laying these things out, the, the core tenets of the gospel for them, as he has just done this, and they're making their way back to Capernaum, these disciples are lingering back because they don't want Jesus to hear what they're talking about. They're hanging back and having this argument among themselves over which of them is the greatest of the disciples. Now, what do they mean? Is it which one Jesus values the most? Is it the one who's the most like Jesus? Or did it have anything whatsoever to do with Jesus? Was it just about them? We don't know the fullness of the argument. We just know the topic. And so as Jesus spoke to them of his sacrifice, they were boasting of their own bigness. Isn't that us? We can be quick to point the finger at the disciples and, and criticize them for their idiocy, for their, for their pride, for their lack of compassion in the moment when Jesus has just told them of his impending, pers- of his impending persecution and execution and then uh, later resurrection. Uh, we, we can just look at them and say, what a bunch of idiots. And yet the same sin-soaked heart that resides within us resided within these 12 men. And pride took over in a place where it should not have. They were boasting. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul would later write, But far be it from me to boast, except... Here's our reason for boasting, church. The only reason we have for boasting is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But as Jesus was talking about the cross... And his sacrifice and his humility, even his humiliation, they're over here hanging in the back, boasting of their own greatness. It was ridiculous, wasn't it? It was prideful. What is pride? It's been said that pride is a sin that we can't often detect in ourselves, but we utterly detest in others. Isn't that true? It's, it's hard to see pride in ourselves oftentimes. Now, sometimes God will give us a glimpse of it. Oftentimes when we read in the pages of His Word, we can see glimpses of our pride. But yet, we very clearly can see pride in others. We'll be quick to conceal our own pride, but man, we will put a magnifying glass on the pride of other people. That, and that in and of itself, by the way, is prideful. Pride is a dangerous and deceitful sin of which if you don't think that you have any pride, let me just go ahead and warn you. You are probably among the most prideful if you think that you do not have any pride. And so Jesus then begins to talk about the priorities of his kingdom. Matthew 23, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. The world doesn't get that. That makes no sense to the world whatsoever. 
Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That seems upside down, but the ways of God's kingdom are so upside down. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Again, it doesn't make any sense to us. We, we can't compute these things except for by the Holy Spirit teaching us the upside down way of God. And in his greatness and in his grace toward us, he teaches us. Secondly, this morning, in verse 47, we need to speak about our obedience. But really, it's a problem with our obedience that we need to speak about. We look at the greatness, the holiness, the grace of God toward us, and our rightful response to Him should have been obedience, but the Bible tells us very clearly that instead all of us sinned and fell short of the glory of God. While we were created in the image of God to display the glory of God in all of the creation and everything that God had made, and that, was, that was our mission in the world. Instead, we chose to rebel against God. And don't just point the finger at Adam and Eve this morning, though they were the first among us. We also recognize that sin is our problem. Sin is our rebellion. Sin is when I look at the righteous demands of my holy God and say, nope, I know better. I'm good. I don't need to be obedient. I don't need to follow you. Did God really say? The devil asked Eve. And from the very beginning, Eve began to twist the words of God just a little bit. And sin was the result. I want you to notice something there in verse 47. It says, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. That word reasoning is in the Greek language, the original language of the New Testament, is the exact same word as in verse 46 where it says argument. An argument arose among them in verse 46. And then in verse 47, but Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. In the Greek language, those are both the same word, reasoning and argument. And so literally what we could have said here was Jesus knew the argument of their hearts. He didn't just know the argument of their words. He knew that it was out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And he knew the heart that lay behind the words. By the way, this morning, be fully aware. Jesus knows the argument of our hearts as well. And while we can come into places like this and we can sing songs to the glory of God and, and while we can put on the church face and, and, and seek to display the glory of God in that way and while we can say all of the right things, while we can seek to do all of the right things, oftentimes there resides in my heart and in your heart an argument against God that we would never think to voice out loud, but it's there. It's an argument against the things of God. Even as we come this morning to the subject of, of foster care and adoption, and I hope you've already seen the heart of God for these things, that He is the God who loves the foreigner and the, and the orphan and the widow. This is God's heart. As we have displayed that this morning, it's easy for us to say, yes, that's what God loves, and yes, that's what we should love. But then internally, here's what we're doing. We are coming up with arguments against those things. So while we would say this morning, man, it's great, isn't that great what the Minguses are doing, what the Osbournes are doing, but I could never do that. Oh, we're much too busy. 
Oh, we don't have nearly enough financial resources. Oh, our house isn't big enough. I could go on and on and on, and, and we could just come up with all, a whole laundry list of reasons why we would not want to engage with the heart of God. Now, let me be careful this morning. I'm not saying to you this morning that if God uh, hasn't called you to, to foster care or to adoption, that you're far from the heart of God. What I am saying, though, is if we don't allow our hearts to be shaped by God's heart, then we are far from the heart of God. And so it may not look like you bringing in a foster child. It may not look like you adopting a kid. But it will mean, it will mean that the heart of God for these things will so radically transform your heart that you cannot help but act upon that which God has shown you. It may mean bringing a kid into your home. It may mean simply welcoming that kid when they show up at church. It may mean that you will become a foster parent. It may simply mean that you need to step up and teach a children's Sunday school class where that foster kid's going to show up on Sunday morning. There's all kinds of ways that this is going to be demonstrated, but the heart of God has got to be demonstrated in the people of God or we don't know Him. We grow in our love for God and for other people because He loved us first. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, by the way, if there's one book I could encourage you to read this year, and we need to get some copies of this over at the Grow Corner. Matt, make a note of that. It's the book Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. This is an amazing book, and it will change your understanding of this issue. He said, when we adopt, and when we encourage a culture of adoption in our churches and communities, that's what we're trying to do here this morning, encourage a culture of adoption in our churches and communities, we are picturing something that's true about our God. From the very beginning this morning, we want to see the heart of God about these things and ask Him, what should our heart be? We, like Jesus, see what our Father is doing and do likewise. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not complicated. And what our Father is doing, it turns out, is fighting for orphans. Didn't we see that in Psalm 68? And in Psalm 82? Exodus 22? I could show you over and over and over again, God fighting for the, for the foreigner, for the fatherless, and for the widow. This is His heart for the least of these. And He makes them sons and daughters. So Jesus knows the argument of our hearts against these things. But once again, Jesus flips the script to teach us. He does something that was so jaw-dropping in the moment. We don't think much about it. There in verse 47 it says, And then Jesus, knowing the argument of their hearts, He took a child and put him by his side. And for most of us, when we read that, in our 21st century thinking, we go, oh, how nice. Jesus is going to do a little object lesson here. You need to understand that in that moment, Jesus did what in the first century in Judea was extremely countercultural. As a rabbi, as a teacher, for him to acknowledge a child... 
was ridiculous. He was demeaning himself in that moment to take notice of a child in their presence. That's why by the time we get to Luke chapter 18, when the children are coming to see Jesus, they're flocking to him because they found him as one who welcomed them, that the disciples are trying to shoo them away. Hey, get out of here, you kids. Jesus doesn't have time for you. But what did Jesus say? No, let the little children come unto me and do not hinder them for such is this. These are the ones to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. So in that moment when Jesus took a child and put him by his side, in fact, even in the book of Matthew, it says Jesus held him in his arms, which would have been appalling to the disciples. What's Jesus doing? Same picture when Jesus washed their feet in that last night before his crucifixion. What is Jesus doing? The same time when Jesus touched the leper in Luke chapter 7. What is Jesus doing? When Jesus touched the pallet of the dead man, of the dead man there in the town of Nain, what in the world is Jesus doing? We don't do that. You don't talk to kids. You don't speak to kids. You don't pick up kids. You don't use kids as an example of anything, but Jesus did. Because he wanted them to understand the priorities of his kingdom. Along similar lines, in Matthew 23, Jesus brings these woes to the religious leaders. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe the mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting others. What's he saying there? He's saying, hey, religious leaders, listen. You have been so focused on the letter of the law, the minutia of the law, that you missed the big picture. You have been so focused on the bark of individual trees that you missed the fact that God's forest was so much bigger than what you had your eye on. While you were obsessed with measuring out a tenth of your spices, Obsessing over these things, you were neglecting the weightier matters, the bigger matters, the things that God was concerned with, matters related to justice and mercy and faithfulness. And by the way, those three terms are again and again and again applied to the foreigners, to the fatherless, and to the widow. So we see God's greatness in our obedience. Thirdly, this morning we need to talk about accepting His authority. Accepting Christ's authority in these matters. And so Jesus said to them, verse 48, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. By the way, the word receive there could just as easily be translated welcome the idea of to invite in, to to give standing to, to recognize and to receive. What's he saying here? Well, it it relates to uh, something that the rabbis in Jesus' day often taught. A, A familiar proverb among the rabbis there in the first century was that a man's representative is like the man. Or we might say a person's representative is like the person. I want you to think for a moment about ambassadors. We have an ambassador to France, an ambassador to Thailand, an ambassador to China. It is is someone who goes on behalf of the country uh, that he is a part of. 
He speaks on behalf. Now, he can't say whatever he wants to say. He says only what the country that he comes from tells him to say. But he's the spokesman. He is the ambassador. He's the representative, of you will, of you will uh, for his country toward the country that he is going to reside in. And Jesus is saying there are two countries. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, of which we are very familiar. And there is the kingdom of God, of which he wants us to become familiar And they are completely and utterly different from one another. And if we are going to learn to live in the kingdom of God, then we need an ambassador. We need a a representative, if you will, to show us what it looks like. And so Jesus says, let me show you what it looks like to live in God's kingdom as he takes that child in his arms. Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We love the last phrase of that verse. There have been songs written, all kinds of things related to that. But I want to point out a word in the middle of that verse. It's the word hospitality. It's a word that sadly has been misused and abused in various ways in our church culture today. Uh, so much so, we, we talk about this corner back here as our hospitality corner. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not the fullness of the biblical picture of hospitality. Literally, the Greek word for hospitality means this, to love a stranger. We think about hospitality when we have somebody over for dinner that we know that we're exhibiting hospitality. No, the Bible says that hospitality in its purest form is the love of a stranger. And it's love in action. It's acting in love towards someone that we do not yet truly know. You say, well, how can I love them if I don't know them? It's exactly what he's calling us to do. Get to know them in love. And he says, and by so doing, by showing this kind of hospitality, some of you are entertaining angels. You don't even realize it, but you are showing hospitality to God's choice messengers in those moments. So a person's representative is like the person, but Jesus is also saying this, to welcome the lowest is to welcome the Lord. Look at it right there in the text. He said, anyone who receives this child receives me. And anyone who receives me receives him who sent me. And so look at the picture here. To receive, to welcome this child is to welcome Christ himself. And to welcome Christ as we know is to welcome the Father. And who doesn't want to welcome Father God? If you want to welcome Father God, then there has to be room in your welcome for the child. This is completely upside down in the way that we look at things from a worldly perspective. But it makes perfect sense in terms of God's kingdom. Because in God's kingdom, he can say things like this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this. And let me say something real quickly. That word religion there is not what we do to try to earn God's love and favor. That's false religion, folks. This religion is what we do because we have received God's love and favor through His gift to us. 
Because of the cross, God has loved us perfectly and invited us to be his sons and daughters. And in this kind of religion, true religion, is that which we do out of our love for him. Because God has loved us so perfectly, now we can show love to him through these kinds of actions. What does it look like? Here it is. This is what it is. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now quickly we could go, well that doesn't sound so bad. Just visit orphans and widows every once in a while, no big deal. Ah, but understand the word here. The word visit here in James 1.27 is derived from the idea in the Old Testament of God visiting His people. It's all throughout the Old Testament that God visited. When, they, when, the, when the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, that God saw their suffering and God visited His people. Here's what the word means. It means to dwell among for the purpose of deliverance. Let me say that again so you understand. This is not just a bop in, bop out kind of visit. This word visit means to dwell among for the purpose of deliverance. And that's what he's saying here about the orphans and the widows, those who were the least of these in the first century and who today still very often are the least of these, the outcasts, the marginalized. He's saying this is what it looks like to, to live out your love relationship with God is that you visit orphans and widows. You dwell among them for the distinct purpose of deliverance. This is what God desires is how he desires us to live out our faith and finally this morning all of this will involve us just simply telling the truth as Jesus does look how he ends this section verse 48 again this is so contrary to the way we think so here's the bottom line he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The smallest is the biggest. The weakest is the strongest. The poorest is the richest. You see, that makes no sense. No, worldly speaking, that makes absolutely no sense. We cannot understand that until the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to change our thinking. Begins to give us a heart like God's heart. Begins to teach us to love what God loves and to prioritize what God prioritizes. And so let me make just two statements as we finish up this morning. First of all, we need to see from Scripture very clearly that children are neither to be ignored nor idolized. There are two ditches on this road that we're traveling this morning. There are two ditches. On the one ditch, we have what I would call uh, this child-centered parenting model that has run so rampant in our culture where children are idolized. They are worshipped. They are the center of the home, and everything revolves around the child. And let me say this to us very clearly this morning. There are two ways to destroy a child. One is to neglect them. Another is to worship them. You need to understand that this morning because we have a culture that tends to put children in a category they were never meant to be put into. 
The most important relationship in your home is, first of all, your relationship with Jesus Christ. But even beyond that, the next most important relationship is not the parenting relationship. It is the mother and father marriage relationship. This is by God's design. But in so many homes, the parenting role is trumping the marital role, and the children suffer. You say, well, it doesn't make any sense. You would think if the children are the center of everything that they would be flourishing, but they're not flourishing. And we are watching kids grow up with all kinds of maladies because they have been made the center of a universe that they were never meant to be the center of. Yes, children are to be loved and cared for and nurtured, but they were never meant to be worshipped. But nor were they meant to be ignored. In the first century city of Ephesus, a very, very wicked city, by the way, one thing that Ephesus was known for was something related to children, but it wasn't a good thing. In the first century, the greatest danger for the smallest of children was not what we see today which is abortion. The greatest danger was not abortion, it was abandonment. You see, in the city of Ephesus and in other cities just like it, there was an area in the marketplace, in their version of Walmart, if you will, where everybody went to get their food and all their products. There was an area in the marketplace where if for whatever reason you decided that you no longer wanted to care for a child that was born into your home, perhaps they had a disability, perhaps they had a speech impediment, perhaps you just got tired of feeding them, if for whatever reason you decided that you no longer wanted to care for that child, you simply took them to this, to this area in the marketplace and you left them. Now, I'm not talking about like laws we have today where you can leave a child at the hospital and they'll be brought into the foster care system and cared for. I'm not talking about that. No, we're talking about utter abandonment to where it was not uncommon for those children in the rougher seasons of the year to perish there within a matter of days. Just left there, and everyone ignored the issue. Infants screaming on the sidewalk for food and for comfort and for love, and everyone just walked on by and paid no mind. And this had gone on for generations upon generation. It was normal. We think how atrocious that, the, that people would act in such a way, but this is how little children were valued in that culture. But then historians record that by the end of the first century, there were no more children dying in the marketplace. By the end of the first century, there were still children being brought to the marketplace, but there were no more little corpses there. What happened? Folks, the church happened. The church of Jesus Christ grew up in those years. And by the way, the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. 
Many of you guys know Ephesians chapter 1. Let me read to you just the first few verses. The Apostle Paul writes to the church planted there in Ephesus, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Listen to this. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. This is part of our story, church. Now, I know, real quickly, some of the room are going to get caught up on that word predestined. I don't have time to get into that this morning, but I do want to get into this. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I can't help but think that when the church at Ephesus received this letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul and they saw the atrocities happening in their own marketplace, that some in that first century church, they rose up and they said, something's got to be done. Someone's got to do something about the fact that infants are dying in our marketplace. And Christian families began to go to the marketplace day after day to see if a baby had been left, that they could bring them in to their homes so that no more babies would die. They would be cared for. They would be brought up in the nurture in a loving home. They would be taught to love Jesus Christ, the one who has adopted sinners like us into the family of God, that we might be called the children of God. And the heart of God was put on display in first century Ephesus because the church got outside the walls and took seriously God's call to love the Father fatherless church will that be true of us today again i want to be so crystal clear to you i am not saying to you today that if you don't go sign up for foster care classes tomorrow you're out of the will of god what i'm saying to you this morning is if you don't care about this issue then your heart is not in line with god's heart As your pastor, I'm praying that God will enlarge my heart for these things. But I'm saying if we just turn a blind eye, we are no better than those in the city of Ephesus who walked by and heard infants screaming for care and gave them none. God, help us to have a heart like yours. That's our simple prayer for the day.